since it's been a couple of weeks, and as is my typical practice, let's go ahead and look at some uh, look at a review of some major points that we've talked about really throughout the book of Romans up to this point. Number one, man sins. Man's created his own problem. But God has provided the solution. He has gifted man. Excuse me. He's gifted uh, Jesus as the solution to man's problem. And so to me, that just speaks volumes of the grace and love that God has shown man. When you think about the fact that man created the problem, right? But then yet God developed the solution. He actually developed the solution before the foundation of the world. Second, or third, that I uh, pointed out was faith is to be reckoned as righteousness, or is reckoned to righteousness, and what type of faith is given as an example of this, this faith that is reckoned as righteousness? Oh, it's an obedient faith. Who was given as the example? Abraham. And we made an observation that, we're, you know, when you think about from just human wisdom, that Abraham believed God, even when they were beyond age, to have a child, Abraham believed God, believed that God would bring in an heir through whom the, the world would be blessed. And this justification by faith then reconciles man back to God. Um, and, and so then the last point I brought up is really, as I mentioned just a minute ago, this, this uh, plan, this plan of redemption really evidences God's magnificent grace and love that he has toward his creature. And that's in spite of the fact that our condition before him is helpless, we are sinners, and we are his enemies. And we'll talk more about this. We, we, we touched on this slide briefly at the close two weeks ago, and I want to go ahead and pick up here for just a couple of minutes, and then we'll move quickly into uh, the latter half, latter section of chapter 5. But when you think about the fact that we are helpless, we created the problem, but could we solve the problem on our own? No, right? We, we could not work our way out of the pit that we built for ourselves, it was God who did it for us. And so notice, again, going back to Romans 5, verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died. Notice how he describes us for the ungodly. So we are helpless. We're ungodly. We are his enemies. We are sinners. And then notice at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A couple of things I, I thought of, and number one is, you know, I can say I love you all day long. But how are you going to know that what I said is actually true? I, I show it. I, I demonstrate it. I heard something else over here. Didn't. Not sure exactly what it was, but I have to show it. I have to demonstrate that love to prove to the other person 
that I truly love that person. That's what God did. He demonstrated his own love toward us. Think about John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that gift, that part of his grace that he provided or sent Jesus for us, and that Jesus was willing to be that sacrifice for us. Um, Then notice in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What does that, that remind us of that we studied a few weeks ago? Namely in Romans 3. Remember going back to Romans 3, verse 25. I'm actually going to do 24. What I'm trying to do is I want to connect several dots here in today's lesson because I think for us to understand the latter half of Romans 5, we have to sort of think about what we've learned up to this point. And notice here in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Remember when we talked about propitiation, we recall that propitiatory sacrifice on the Day of Atonement where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and that appeased God, that appeased his wrath. That's this image that we see here in verse 9 where the blood of Christ, we're justified through it, but also notice we are saved from his wrath, from the wrath of God. So, Let's go on then and look at verse 10. And and if you have the questions from uh, last week's lesson, I asked the question, what did God do while we were his enemies? Why should we be be described as enemies? Why should the ungodly, the sinners, be described as God's enemies? The The gravity of sin... God can't associate with sinners. But if we are sinning, who are we serving? Satan. Satan. And thereby, because we are serving Satan, choosing to serve Satan, we are in essence his enemy. So I think let's keep that in mind. So even then, notice the gravity of the sin Notice the gravity of our actions and that we, are, we have chosen to serve God's uh, enemy, Satan. Notice what God has done. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. <coughs> so, it's again through that death, that willingness that Jesus died for us, that we have been able to be reconciled back to God. I want you to think about Matthew, the fifth chapter. Do you know where I'm going? Let's go back to Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. I'm just making a little application here. Not necessarily critical to the understanding of Romans 5, but I think it speaks volumes. Because if we are seeking to serve God and seeking to be God-like, to be like Christ, 
But then we look at Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. What should our attitude be toward those who are our enemies? Love. Love. Turning the other cheek. If we espouse to be Christ-like, to be God-like, then when you think about what God did for us while we were his enemies, to me that just speaks volumes to us as Christians when you read Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. It, it speaks volumes. And then when you think about Philippians, Philippians the second chapter, and you then think about what Jesus did, we were his enemies. But notice what Jesus did for us. Beginning in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that really is going back to verse 5, excuse me, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that what Christ did? We were his enemies, but he sought the best interest of his, of his enemy. And what did he do? Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see the parallel and the things that just the applications that we can learn just from this passage when we see that we were God's enemies. And as sinners, we are his enemies. But the things that God and Christ did for us that we might be able to be reconciled back to him. And then verse, verse 10, the end of verse 10, much more, even beyond being reconciled, being brought back to God, we shall be saved by his life. Now, I'm just going to go out there and say this, this life that is being referenced isn't his physical life. Now, granted, his pure, un spotted life, physical life as a man, that greatly important because he would not have been the sacrifice that he would have been, he, he is, had he been spotted. Does that make sense? But what's here and what's under consideration is his resurrected life. The fact that he still lives. Think about 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been saved, what's the repercussion? We're still dead in our sins. So we are saved by his resurrected life, the fact that he still lives. And then verse 11, it says, And not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. And so when you think about the fact that we were helpless sinners, enemies to God, we were ungodly, but God has demonstrated he's poured out his love on us, on man, that we have this opportunity to be reconciled back to him. What should our response be? What should be our reasonable service of worship, to use the phrase in Romans 12, 1, that we haven't quite gotten to yet? We should be sacrificing. It's, it's a sacrificial attitude. 
it's only reasonable that we would want to worship God. And when I say worship God, I'm not talking in these four walls. Worshiping God is beyond just what we do here. Worshiping God is how we live every day. That sacrificial life, that's what our reasonable service is. Because when you think about it, when you think about Revelation and the throne scene, what are these people doing 24-7 to use human time? They're worshiping. Let me just say this. I'm going to be frank, okay? If we're not willing to worship God 24-7, 365, then how do we think we're ever going to be making it into those pearly gates, to use that phrase, where we're going to worship him for eternity? It doesn't make sense. David. I was just going to add, you kind of amplify your point of the importance of the resurrected life, life of, of our Lord and Savior. And, and that is, uh, if he was not and is not raised, <clears throat> then we do not have an advocate, we do not have a mediator, and we do not have a high priest. Yeah, and that's all Hebrews. And I'm going to come back to Hebrews, so that's a good segue, because I'm going to come back to Hebrews as we move into this latter half of uh, Romans 5. Okay, are we ready to move forward? So, real quick, God's love has solved our problem of being helpless, sinners, ungodly, and his enemies. Now, let me move quickly on to what I want you to really take away from today's lesson, uh, and that is this. Through the one act of righteousness, and that's referring to Christ, we'll dig deep into this coming up, but Jesus provides a pathway for justifying man. And so as you, when you think about um, when, when you think about what he's talked up to this point, he's talked about justification, he's talked about his grace, he's talked about God's love. As I look at this latter half of chapter 5, it is all about the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, of Christ's obedience to God's will. And, you know, there's a lot of things people get off point here in the latter half of chapter 5. But if you understand the context, and this, I was telling John before the class, you know, there's a lot of just misunderstanding of, of, of this passage, of this section. To me, it really shows the importance of really understanding context. Not just the immediate context of the passage, but the bigger context. And if you understand context, then we should be okay. So, let's talk about this. The primary focus, again, is on the supremacy of God's grace, his sac- Christ's sacrifice, Christ's obedience. So, let's go ahead. In today's lesson, question one. And this moves us into uh, verse 12. Very simply, through whom did sin enter the world? One man. Now, in this big picture, he, Paul is going to make this comparison between two men, Adam, Christ. And he's going to contrast these and then make some application. 
um, uh, on, with regard to Christ's supremacy, the supremacy of God's grace, things like that. So what did it result? Man, one man's sin, what was the result? Death, separation, death for who? Why? All sinned. And that is key to understanding this section. Because if you don't think the fact that we all have sinned, what's that? Romans 3.23. He's already proven that all men have sinned, Gentiles and Jews. But if you don't pick up this passage right here, because all sin in the context here, then you might be tempted to go off in what I call the proverbial left field. Okay? So let's just keep that in mind. So number the first thing I want to just affirm, as we've said, one man brought sin into the world, and subsequently death. So let's talk about death for just a minute. Now, because of Adam and Eve sinning, they were thrust out of the garden, separated from the tree of life. So in that respect, what was a consequence of their sin? Physical death. But what's under consideration here is not the physical death. Because when you sin, what happens? You die spiritually. Okay? And how many sins does it take to do that? One. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Or maybe in a few. Okay. I'm not as precise in my time as Leland is. So just keep that in mind. Okay. So then, as we've said, death spread to all men because all sin. That goes back to Romans 3.23. So... What can I conclude from verse 12? If all men sin and we die, then let me sort of lead you to the, the, the fountain, the water, the trough, if you will. Because what do a lot of people want to say with regard to my guilt of sin? It's inherited, right? But what does Romans 5.12 say? I sin, I die. It's not the result of someone else's sin. We'll come back to that concept when we get to verse 18 uh, in this passage. But I want you to think about Ezekiel 18.20. What does Ezekiel 18.20 say? The soul that sins will die. Okay, so again, we'll circle back around to this concept, but I'm wanting to lay some groundwork here, okay? So, that's what we know at this point. Now, when he talks about the fact that all have sinned, it's almost as if Paul thinks, ooh, let me, let me come over here and talk a little bit about sin, okay? And so I'm just going to say, as I read this, thir- verses 13 through 17 appear to me to be parenthetical. 
And so 12 connects to 18. But regardless of whether you think 13 and 17 is parenthetical or not, you arrive at the same point, okay? Because Paul does two things. Paul seeks to do a contrast between one man's transgression and the other man's obedience. And then he also does a contrast between the transgression of man and the abounding grace of God. So we're going to talk first about the latter, about one man's transgression and God's grace, the abounding nature of God's grace. And that, to me, is the subject of verses 13 through 17. And then when we get to verse 18, we'll do the other, the second contrast. Okay? So, let's go into question two. What reigned between Adam and Moses? Death. Okay. Notice, I'm going to go into verse 13 because it sort of lays some additional groundwork. So, because all sin, verse 12. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. I'm going to stop right there. What's he saying? How can death reign between Adam and Moses? Let me, let, me, let me take a step back. Why does he say Moses? The law. The law of Moses. So then why does he say death reigned between Adam and Moses? Sin entered the world with Adam. So sin didn't start with the law. Okay, he also, and we've all already talked about this in the past in other sections of Romans, that law brings about what? A knowledge of sin, right? When you think about Hebrews 11, what did Abel do? Offered a more excellent sacrifice by faith. What do we know about faith? Comes by hearing. So what do we know must have existed between Adam and Moses? Law. Wasn't the law of Moses, but there was still law. And so what the point here that Paul is making is there was still sin from Adam to Moses. Sin reigned. Death reigned. Okay? And so that's, that's the point that I think we need to, yeah, Tolly. In other words, the law of Moses was written and they were held accountable because then now they have boundaries. You can't do this, you can do this. So it's not going to be counted before that, right? There was still law. Right. God still made known his law between Adam and Moses. Case in point, Noah. The world was unrighteous, full of unrighteousness. So if it was full of unrighteousness... Who determined the righteous? God. Noah was deemed righteous. So there was a law that was known that man still failed to keep. And Carrie, I was just going to say, he's already addressed this in chapter 2. He he, he talked at great length when he was distinguishing between the Jews and the Mm -hmm. Gentiles. Right. 
And it's in 2, in verse 12, he says, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. Mm-hmm. And so he's already talked about yeah. God's natural law that has yeah. applied to the Gentiles yeah. for all time. Right. So, again, it may not have been in the same vein as the law of Moses, but there was still a law that God had made known in some respect, doesn't matter how, not important. But we know from the evidence that there had to have been law that, was, that God had made known, and he held men accountable. And that's why he re- reminds his reader in verse 14 that death reigned from Adam until Moses. So sin's been this problem from the very beginning, okay? And so he talks about Adam then being a type who was to come. Now, who's the one who is to come? Christ. When you think about this word type, it's actually our, it's tupas is how the Greek pronounced it. I don't think I'm obliterating it with my southern accent. But it really means to mark, to make an impression. And for those of you who are probably my age or older, you can remember the typewriter, right? Okay, I learned the type, how to type. That was my most valuable course in high school was typing. I really think it was, you know, with the advent of the computer. But anyway, I was pretty good at typing. But when that thing hit the paper, what did it leave? A stain, a mark of the original, uh, okay? So that's this concept here. Uh, and so he's now building this comparison of this contrast that's going to happen between, he's going he's gonna to show between Adam and, and Christ. And so going into verse 15, and this is question three, we're going to ask about to, to com- compare or contrast this transgression of the one and the free gift of God. So let's go in and look at this together. Because I think it may make more sense if we sort of go through a little bit at a time. So notice um, in verse 15, For if by the transgression of the one the many died. So, who is the one? Adam. If by the transgression of the one, the many died, who's the many? Mankind. Men have died. But why did they die? Was it because something Adam did? All sin, yeah. Men, men have sinned. That's what he just said in verse 12. They die because all men sin. Okay? And so... We men have earned that spiritual death, right? The wages of sin is death. We haven't yet gotten to that in chapter 6. That's next week. For the wages of sin is death. So here we know then that, yes, Adam introduced it, but we followed, the rest of mankind followed Adam's example and have sinned. And therefore... We bring upon ourselves death. But even when we think about that, notice how Paul words it. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So, God has given us through his grace this gift 
Jesus Christ, and that abounds to the many. Now, what are the different components of this gift? So Jesus, but let's think about specifically what we've read up into Romans at this point. Yes, yes. It, and we made this observation in other components uh, of Romans that this justification, this grace, this um, reconciliation, it's available to all men, right? But just like we chose to follow Adam's example of sin, of, being, of, of committing sin, then who are the many then who have access to this grace? We have, all of us have access, but going back to what Tolly said, it is those who choose to follow the example of Christ. And notice the wording that, G, that, that Paul uses. Think about how the ugly, ugliness of sin but even much more than the ugliness of sin is that grace that is given through Christ to those who accept it. Okay, so the grace of, of God, and he comes back to this in verse 20 and 21, but this grace of God is far more powerful and able to deal with the ugliness of sin. Think about one of the earlier slides where I X'd out the helpless, X'd out the sinner, X'd out the, the enemy, we see that God's grace and the gift of Christ that he gave man is able to abolish all of that. Okay. So, then when you go to verse 15, excuse me, so really... Let me just sort of summarize 15, and that is, we see the superior and powerful nature of this grace as it relates to the ugliness of sin. So now, question four, what causes the condemnation of man? Sin. Notice verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. And we've already, already mentioned this, the fact that Adam sinned, and that one sin separated him from God. He was due death. He was due condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And the way I liken to think, you know, I think this is when you think about all of the sins of man throughout time. And I even think about David Creech's, I have to specify which David I'm talking about. But David Creech's um, uh, comment when we were studying Leviticus and of the thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices, but were they able to deal with man's sin? Hebrews, think about Hebrews. 
the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And so when we think about this, we earned death, but did we earn this grace that God has, has given to us? If we earned it, it wouldn't be a gift, right? It would be wages. That's the point that Paul made, makes back in, in chapter 4. And so notice then, I'm going to rephrase this, other hand, on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So whereas the blood of all these sacrifices, animal sacrifices, couldn't deal with the ugliness of sin, the one gift of Christ and his sacrifice did. And so... Through that one sacrifice, we are then able to uh, be justified by God. And, one, and so ne- let's go into verse 17, because this to me sort of summarizes some things. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, we've already noted, our sins resulted in death, that's what we earned, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of the righteousness. Now, notice the wording here. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. And who is that? Christians, followers of Christ. And notice what will happen for them. They will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So here is sort of the way I, my brain works, okay? Which can be scary. But notice, when you think about Adam, he brought sin into the world and death reigns because people sin. But then through Christ, Christ brought grace into the world and for those who accept it, Again, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, they will reign. And I could not help but think about, um, well, two passages. 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go there real, real quickly. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, it would help if I go to 1 Corinthians and not 2 Notice, beginning in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, through Christ, through his grace, the grace of God, we can have victory, and we will reign. And the other passage I thought of, I couldn't help but think about Revelation 22. And for the sake of time, I won't read all of that. But when you think about Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and let's just focus on verse 5. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so you see the the contrast that, that Paul is making in an to, to show the supremacy of God's grace that is available through Christ. Without Christ, 
death reigns over us. Death has the power over us. But through Christ, we can be the victor. We can be victorious, and we can be the one reigning. Tolly. Yes. Yes. The law was of works and not faith. So there's that contrast there too. Mm -hmm. Yes, right, absolutely. Okay, so now let's move into uh, verses 18 through 21. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, I mentioned this back in, in verse 12. <clears throat> I'll just be, you know, frank. Calvinism hangs its hat, or part of its hat, on chapter 5. Through total uh, inherited depravity, I think I said that right. Hereditary depravity, yes. <clears throat> and they, they look to this passage, okay? And specifically verse 18, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Well, there you go. Because of Adam's sin, I'm guilty when I'm born. I've done nothing, but I'm still guilty. But if you accept that premise, you then must accept universal salvation, which is really, uh, it's not the latter half, but you have to view it that way. Where even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. You cannot have it one way and not the other. They go hand in hand in this passage. Okay? And the Calvinist will not believe in universal... A true Calvinist will not espouse a universal salvation. Leanne. <clears throat> infant baptism they'll quote this verse for for saying that man was born with original sin and stuff like that and i had to go um i used to believe that because i wasn't too familiar with the Mm -hmm. scriptures and then when i got familiar with the scriptures i realized what uh what they were doing was twisting that scripture into what they wanted it to believe because god never ever ever blames innocence innocent babies for anything. Well, yeah, and again, you've got to go back. Think about Ezekiel 18.20, Ezekiel 18.30. It, God holds each person accountable. So then, let's look at verse 18 again. Well, let's go back to 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So then... Going to verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. What's the point we've made earlier? Why did all men stand condemned? Because all men sinned. They chose to follow the example of Adam. Even so, through one act of righteousness, what's the act of righteousness? Christ on the cross. Because when you think about, and, and then let, let's go and keep that point in mind. There resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, who was disobedient? Adam. 
the many were made sinners, why are we made sinners? Because we have been disobedient, okay? Even so, through the obedience of the one, what did the one, how did the one obey God? He went to the cross, that's Hebrews. So let's go to Hebrews 10 real quickly. <clears throat> so, Hebrews, well, let's first go to Hebrews 5. <clears throat> Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Advance over to uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse, I'm going to just say 9 for the sake of time. Then he said, behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So did Jesus have a choice? Yeah, he had a choice. But he chose to obey the Father's will. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And as a result of his obedience, then what effect does that have for, the, for us? We are righteous for those who follow Jesus' example. So there's a contrast. I'm going to go ahead and bring this up here. So there's a contrast between man's disobedience. When you think about Adam, man follows Adam's example. They are condemned and they are classified as sinners just like the one, just like the one man, Adam. But for Christ's obedience, then... Those who follow Christ's example will be justified and deemed to be righteous. So really, when you think about this latter half of section 5, it's contrasting Adam and those who follow Adam's, uh, Adam's example and Christ and those who follow Christ's example. Because we've already identified and shown in the earlier sections of Romans 5, or excuse me, of Romans, that it's us it's man who sins it's man's uh who has created the problem we've already seen that the the salvation and the ability to be justified is available to all men but it's only available to those who have faith in christ remember we've talked a lot about the exclusionary aspect of christ and christianity so that's verses 18 and 19. And then when you think about verse 20, and this is question six, why did the law come? Notice the law came in that the transgression might increase. Well, what's he saying? Exactly. And he really builds upon that in chapter 7 where he comes back to this topic that the law made man further aware of sin and God's expectation of righteousness. But even then, when you think about all the sin that man has created or or done to bring death upon him, grace abounded all the more. And so, again, showing that supremacy of God's wonderful, matchless grace, unmatchless grace to deal with 
the issue of sin that man has caused. And so in verse 21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus. You see that? So Jesus, his sacrifice, God's grace is far superior to anything and can deal with that issue of sin that man's created. And so now, before he goes into chapter 7 to talk about the law, and the, pro, you know, the law bringing about that knowledge of sin, he's first going to deal with a logical, well, I won't know if it's logical, but an obvious question then that his audience, his reader, is going to think about, well, if, if sin brings about all God's grace and makes his, God's grace known, well, then we need to sin. And so he deals with that issue first, that's, Romans 6, that's what we'll look at next week. Then he'll come back and deal with the law and the knowledge of the law that it brought about in chapter 7. I got to stop. They're, they've opened the doors. So anyway, thank you.